You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and Canacurious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. We are a group of experts in different cannabis spaces with a wide diversity of perspectives and life experiences. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Wednesday, May 4th, 2022. This is episode number 272. I'm Susan Sores, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book, What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's favorite grandma, AKA Nanogram. If you are listening to the podcast, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific time on Clubhouse. Spark it up with us and over 30,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you would like to be an audience participant. Otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. Today we're talking about a shootout threat to Oklahoma Senator over license fees, momentum building in the Senate for a major cannabis bill, Emerald Village in West Hollywood, cannabis tourism in Germany, America's fifth largest crop, and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. Kicking off the show today is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. What have you got for us today, Rico? Man, I got some spice coming out of Oklahoma. Um, so my story is coming from Trey Savage uh, at Nondoc um, Nonprofit News out of Oklahoma. And it's a voicemail sent to Senator Jessica Garvin threatens shootout over marijuana licensing fees. And I want to offer a, a trigger warning um, as we start the audio here that we're about to play because it includes threats of violence to a public official. You want to go ahead and play it, Susan? Yes, I'm calling to let the sellout know that we are all against HB 2179. If it does pass, we will continue to operate. If we have to fire the shots heard around the world, we're not scared of the OBNDD. We're not scared of the OFBI. We are not scared of government fucking period. My name is I have two businesses in the state of Oklahoma. My first business is on Main Street. If you motherfuckers want some, I will continue to operate. I will not fucking pay more for my license. So when I continue to operate, when this bill passes, you bring your fucking asses to the And we'll have a fucking shootout right in the parking lot. Be sure to bring the Cherokee Nation because my first citizenship is Cherokee. So you might want to bring them bitches. Fuck all of you sell out fucking government pieces of shit. <laughs> to respond or forward Goddamn. <laughs> well um even though the threatening party uh, left his own name business on the voicemail non-doc censored it citing the ongoing criminal investigation is reasoning osbi has jurisdiction over the threats uh, against public officials but since the suspect identified himself as a tribal citizen in eastern oklahoma they decided to punt it to the feds um there's uh brooke r beatman's uh, um, uh response response to the article she is the uh, the spokesperson for osbi because the suspect's tribal status and based in mcgirt uh, supreme ca- uh, court ruling uh, we forwarded that investigation to the fbi osbi takes 
threats to lawmakers extremely seriously, and we do all that we can to ensure safety and security by working with our law enforcement partners. The caller said that he's a co-owner of a business in Sequoia County and a citizen of Cherokee Nation. Uh, Julie Hubbard, communications director for Cherokee Nation, said that they do not condone threats of any kind against public officials, regardless of the subject. If applicable, they'll work with relevant authorities. Senator Garvin became principal senator under uh, author of HB, the uh, controversial HB 2179 on April 7th. Um, she said in response, unfortunately, this isn't the first time my office uh, received threats about public policy. Each time our Oklahoma Highway Patrol Senate, uh, Senate Security Team and OSBI has taken this threat seriously and have gone out of the way to make me and my family feel safe. Uh, the, the bill's co-author, Republican Rep. Uh, Scott Fettgatter, said that he had heard the voicemail before, uh, before responding and play, is placing the blame on the previous administration. Sounds like a Republican, Jason. <laughs> uh, most, he said, most people that I talk to want to do anything to, uh, don't want to do anything to harm legal business owners, but because uh, the failures of the Oklahoma Medical Marijuana Authority uh, over the past four years, uh, while things are moving in the right direction now with the new director, um, but those failures have created an environment that is somewhat hostile in the state of Oklahoma. Um, this is, an this is a very unfortunate event all around. Um, I don't condone any threats like this. I especially don't uh, condone snitching on yourself and telling everything about where you are, what you do, <laughs> giving your whole damn resume while you're snitching on a, on a voicemail. But um, things are heating up in Oklahoma. Nobody likes more taxes. Everybody's feeling uh, uh, feeling the heat from higher taxes and lower, cri uh, lower prices coming to products. And... Um, I don't know, man. I'd like to hear what the rest of the team has to say about this. I'd like to hear some responses from people on both sides of the aisle. Um, it's, it's it's weird to hear this stuff going towards Republicans, um, it, but they're raising the taxes, too. People don't want taxes, and people are hurting. Uh, where are we going to get some relief? Um, I'm not condoning this man's words in any way, form, or fashion, but I, I do think we're going to see more of this um, in other states as well. This is Rico Lamite, dopest dad on the street, reporting for State of Cannabis News Hour. Love to hear what the rest of the team has to say. Steve, did you want to weigh in? And if there's anyone from Oklahoma in the audience, please raise your hand. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, I thank you, Rico, for this uh, art article, number one, um, because it really does, um, you know, of course, I do not condone violence uh, um, and cannabis growth, for crying out loud. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I, I'm absolutely surprised that uh, people have not gone absolutely apeshit postal, and I'm surprised that um, there hasn't been um, more violence coming from people who have been just completely... Uh, time and time after again, you meet a standard and you get your face shoved in the dirt. You meet a standard, you get face shoved in the dirt. It's uh, this um, perpetual process of um, feeling like you're getting cut down consistently um, that would drive a person to do such things, you know. And I empathize with the guy 110% because I relate to him. Um, because the absolute, uh, absolute absurdity of not only the uh, local jurisdictions, but state jurisdictions, and then we go on to the national jurisdiction. And nobody's got checks on balances on anybody. We are being literally um, stolen from. Um, given false pieces of paper, told it that it's a document, that it's not a document, and um, so on and so forth. So, I mean, I totally empathize with this man's frustration. I don't agree with the uh, violence and go Cherokee Nation. Uh, Rico, I was wondering what, what sounded Republican about this guy, because to me, he just sounds like like crazy. No, it's a, it's a threat to the Republicans. We're used to, um, uh, over the last couple of years, we're used to hearing all the shit coming from uh, Republican Republican sympathizers and people who think that the uh, Republicans are doing things to help them out and they're attacking Democrats. But now we're seeing that Republicans are 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 subject to these threats now too. So um, I just think it's inter I think it's interesting that uh, Republicans in office they get they get the they get free slate they get a free slate to blame everything on uh, previous administrations. But when Democrats do that. They get shot down immediately. What's your take on that, Jason, Mr. Republican? Well, well, first of all, let me just say that I, I don't condone these types of actions in any way. I think uh, I think for one, it's stupid. It's not the right way to actually get something done. But nonetheless, 
um, I, I have to th think back too. like this guy is protesting taxes. And that is what, you know, we, we had the whole Boston Tea Party about with, with, in, with regards with creating the United States is to break away from Britain and, and fight against tyranny of taxes and whatnot. And so I'm just surprised that this isn't happening more and more. And especially here in California, not even with just with cannabis, but just with the gasoline prices. So should we yeah, throw I, all I, our I, cannabis I, into the ocean? I, I yeah, think I, look, I, I, I should I, go into the ocean. I, I appreciate guys' frustration because I think we all share it. I don't agree with the way it came out, but I, I feel like I just got to say that, like, I'm a little jealous because I would love to be that frustrated, and I candidly feel that that is not afforded to some of us. And so kudos for him for taking his privilege and acting out because I don't know that we could act or that I could act out like that. I don't know that I would want to, but... I do share that frustration. I do know where it's coming from. And so the frustration and the sentiment is kind of accurate. Um, the way it came out, I'm probably low-key jealous, actually. I think, I think it's very interesting. Uh, he said he's a, he is a, um, he's, he's living on the reservation land and he's daring them to come <laughs> and, and come in and threaten his business. And he's going to have a shootout with them. That's a whole different uh, layer uh, added to the whole story. And it's, it's going to be interesting because there's a lot of those uh, dispensaries that are opening up on uh, native lands now. And we can see similar situations. I don't know what's going to happen. Well, at least you let law enforcement know what time it is when they pull up so they already know how to act. You know what I'm saying? And where to pull so up so, and what his so name is. So Bundy Ranch. They said the same thing, but they were white. Good point, Rico. Uh, is it true that uh, there's a suicide problem in the Emerald Triangle because yes, it is of true. All this bullshit? It is true. I've lost three friends, folks. Yeah. So when you talk about violence, no we need to we need to include that violence too. Well, I mean, it's either it's either uh, project that violence upon yourself or project it outside. And I, I agree with you so much, Guy, that this is just um, one person. At, at the end of his rope and you know most of us have been there at periods of time and have managed to get a couple of inches up that rope and not lose our shit but you know it sounds like yes this guy is just if anybody has experienced what we've been experiencing for the last five years you would have nothing but empathy for this poor fellow um no and again i don't agree with violence i don't agree with what he did but yeah, he, I'm a little bit jealous. <laughs> I'll tell you this, though, um, whoever, uh, if this guy does do something and whatever uh, attorney is going to defend him, he definitely should pick a jury pool of all cannabis operators because they would totally sympathize with his grief. Oh, the guy would get off. <laughs> I mean, they went from $2,500 a license to $1.50 per square foot. Ouch. It's, they're, it's kill a they're, they're killing people down there. <clears throat> It's a really sad story, and uh, I don't know. Are you know. crying? Are you crying, Susan? Shut up, Jason. There's no <laughs> crying in Let's, the news. It, it's really sad. It's like so fucked. May have something to do with the fact that the OMMA has to. Uh, I believe they got to pay for their metric tag. They might just need to collect more in licensing fees so they can afford to pay for the metric tags since they lost that lawsuit. If that's the case, they should be taking their anger and aggression on metric. And that would be a much better place for it, and they would probably get less time. I agree. So we got to keep it moving here. Uh, up next, my partner in crime, the ivory to my ebony. He is the longest. I'm sorry, y'all. Baby girl is hurting over here. But uh, he's the longest continuously running retailer in the industry. The mint coat wearing, private jet hopping, emerald cup flavor tasting. Man, international man of mystery. Jason Beck, what you got for us? Oh, yeah. Good morning, Rico. Hope everyone is having an amazing hump day today. Today, my story comes out of Michigan. And for anyone that has known me for a substantial, substantial, substantial amount of time, long before I ever had a dispensary, I always wanted to have an apartment that was just full of vending machines with drugs and just send everybody over there. And so... This, when I saw this story, I was like, oh, my God, this guy fucking th this guy, this guy did it. And so 25 years later, we find a guy in Detroit, Michigan, with 18 guns, found at a home in Detroit with a man making two thousand dollars a day with marijuana vending machines. Police say officials say they found 18 guns at a home of a Detroit man who was making two thousand dollars per day by running a marijuana vending machine outside the house. 
On January 7th, officials with the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms and Explosives received an anonymous tip. That's always a snitch. That a person named Marsilius Cornwell was operating a vending machine on the side of his house and using it to sell marijuana and pills, according to a criminal complaint filed last week, April 26th. The tip also claimed Cornwell had numerous firearms and was selling drugs and firearms to minors, officials said. Cornwell is either 42 or 43. I find that hysterically because if the government can't figure out how old how old you are, I'm not sure what they're really doing. Um, years old in lives and material street on Detroit's West side authority said he has a criminal history that includes convictions in 1997 for armed robbery, a felony firearm in 2008 for carrying a concealed weapon, 2009 for felon in possession of a firearm and felony firearm in, in 2011 for three counts of identity theft, according to the court records. Officials said Cornwall was sentenced to more than one year in prison for each of those convictions. ATF agents concluded surveillance at Cornwall's home and twice purchased suspected marijuana from the vending machine in February and March, the criminal complaint says. Uh, Specifically, ATF agents uh, said they purchased 5.28 grams, this must have been in Ohio apparently, of suspected marijuana from the vending machine on February 18th and 4.1 grams on March the 1st. On March 14th, authorities said they received a search warrant for Cornwall's home. Um, they list a whole host of firearms um, that they found at the scene. I went through and I counted on the list. I found over 20 guns and over 236 rounds of assorted ammunition that the police confiscated from his home. And Cornwell told officials that there was about $7,000 in cash in the safe in his bedroom, which he unlocked for ATF agents with his fingerprint, officials said. And an unknown amount of cash was found at Cornwell's nightstand. And about $5,700 was found in a bag in the dining room court record show. The criminal complaint concludes that there's probable cause to charge Cornwell with felon in possession of a firearm. Well, duh. I mean, come on. You got fucking 18 firearms, 1820 firearms over there, all kinds of ammunition and a weed vending machine. Come on, bro. Come on. We got to get smarter than this. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. This whole story is crazy. That's like some straight up Detroit shit. <laughs> like, like for real. I don't think anything is sane about this story, like at all. No, not at all. I mean, I had a vending machine in, at Oz, you know, back in like 2004, and so, sold weed out there. Like that's where we put like all the little baby buds, all the shake bags, all the little rolling papers and lighters and whatnot. And that shit was always popping. Shout out to vending machines. <laughs> what happened to it? Do you not? You know, you don't have it anymore, Jason. No, we can't. We can't use it um, after legalization. It kind of made, made that because not no way to track that sale. Okay, but it was. I do think vending machines will be will be um, um, the wave of the future once federal legalization drops and there's a way to identify people's age and everything. I think will, I think we will probably see um, vending machines in airports and shit. Vending machines? Is that a thing? Vending machine companies can do all of this right now. They're just not very popular, but but they certainly have the technology. It's the tracking. I disagree. It's the the tracking and the the hackability um, issue that they have to deal with. And then um, also, yeah, like like if if, we're going to do like fingerprint, or you can like scan people's IDs, or like there's a bunch of different jurisdictions that you got to run through. and it's just impossible to really regulate those as they want to um, before federal legalization drops. So I think Weird. they are it's, the best it's far, way. Far, it's, it's far, far, far too complicated. I've looked at a number of these machines, and they're 100% of them are totally inaccurate for, for what, what the job actually is or what they need to do. Um, I, I don't think – I think ultimately we're not going to see vending machines even after federal legalization. I think more likelihood is like the Amazon Dropbox pickup is probably the most likely locker box scenario. We're, we're at time on this headline, but I wanted to, we've got ATN Fontana up on the stage. Yeah, ATN, what did you want to say? Uh, just to reiterate, it is very challenging dealing with vending machines. Uh, we had the first vending machine at LAPCG and CPG back in 2006. And yes, uh, what they're stating, it is a challenge because most of those machines were only programmed up to $2. And to reprogram them out of the $2 was needless to say a challenge, uh, but uh, most patients don't want vending machines. They want us to talk to a human. That's one thing that we learned. So, unfortunately, the DEA destroyed it when we were raided in 2007 and destroyed the dispensary. But um, that's why I don't feel vending machines have, have 
trended onward with people because they want the personal experience. Thank you. Perfect. Let's keep smoking the news. Oh, yeah. But coming up next to the stage, I hope you guys are ready because we have a political strategist by day and a baker by night. A true female multitasker who can not only bake up a storm, but also knows how to make the sausage on Capitol Hill. She's the founder of Panoptic Strategies and our very own Washington Insider. Taking off the apron, it's Gretchen Gailey. What do you have this morning for us, Gretchen? Okay, I don't take it off the apron, whatever. All right. Uh, Good afternoon. My headline is coming from the Hill today. Uh, And the headline is Momentum Builds in Senate for a Major Cannabis Bill. Uh, Senators on both sides of the aisle are throwing support behind a proposal to tuck key marijuana banking legislation into a larger packet aimed at boosting U.S. competitiveness, increasing the odds that a significant cannabis bill will get through the upper chamber this year. Senator Patty Murray, uh, who is the number three Democrat, is leading a push to pass the Safe Banking Act, which would enable cannabis firms to use banking services as part of a sweeping package lawmakers are hashing out in both chambers that is intended to bolster the country's supply chains and manufacturing. Uh, While the cannabis measure was not included in the bipartisan U.S. Innovation uh, and Competition Act that passed the Senate, the legislation was featured in the House's version of the bill. Uh, better known as the Capiz Act. Murray says she is fighting every which way to get the cannabis legislation included in the final bill. Uh, She noted that federal law currently forces weed dispensaries to use cash, making them prime targets for robberies. She said, this is a cash-only business right now. It's dangerous for the employees. It's dangerous for the patrons, and it can be fixed. Several senators are pushing to include the bill, which has passed the House six times and has dozens of Democratic co-sponsors in the upper chamber in the broader competition bill. Uh, Senator John Tester of Montana said, the bottom line is that banking's bill, the banking's bill been out there for a long time. It's ready to go. It needs to pass. Senator Steve Daines of Montana, one of nine Senate Republicans uh, who are co-sponsors of the bill, told the bill, told the Hill that he thinks other Republicans could get behind the idea. He said, we've got nine Republican co-sponsors officially on it close to 50 Democrats. There are some other Republicans that I'm confident if we had a vote, would vote for it. So we've got the votes to pass the Safe Banking Act as a standalone if we'd like to. Conferees are expected to complete a compromise China competitive bill that could win the support of 60 senators before the August recess when Congress shifts its focus to the November midterm elections and legislation uh, slows to a crawl. Senate Majority Leader Schumer, uh, who previously blocked safe banking over concerns that its passage would hurt the prospects of wider reforms, hopes to unveil the text of his comprehensive bill to legalize marijuana and expunge federal pot convictions, uh, the CAOA, uh, around the same time. He said, or I'm sorry, Steve Hawkins of the U.S. Cannabis Council said, clearly it's not aimed for passage this Congress if it's coming out in August. Even if it comes out sooner than that, it's too late in the calendar year. So what that means, if we really have an open playing field to push for the passage of SAFE. I cannot agree more with Steve Hawkins of USCC. Uh, Chuck Schumer knows exactly what he's doing by pretending to care and push this bill out there. It has no hope of going anywhere uh, this August. Uh, People need to line up behind Senator Patty Murray of Washington. She is a very powerful woman uh, in the Senate. And if she can get this thing through, I think uh, that would be a great thing for SAFE banking to get it on to the Competes Act. Uh, this is Gretchen for State of Campus News Hour. I don't know about taking off the apron, Gretchen, but if you take off the gloves, I'd be worried I'd get punched out. <laughs> oh, yeah. And shout out to Senator Patty Murphy. We definitely appreciate her efforts and, and the goal to pass safe banking. Momentum, momentum. I mean, we got I know many on this call are against safe banking, but if you want to see any cannabis reform this year, that is the only one that is poised uh, to get done. Um, 100%. It's the only thing that's going to go anywhere, buddy. Gretchen, are you looking forward to seeing safe baking get passed? I am. I'm looking forward to a major piece of cannabis legislation making it out of the Senate and serving as an icebreaker for more comprehensive reforms to come behind it. I think the all-or-nothing approach to the first time out the gate is a bad idea. I think you need to go with things that are palatable um, and that people will vote for, frankly, in an election year. 
Actually, uh, Gretchen, I, mean, I, think I know you, we I, all I hate think, politics, but uh, you got to play you the heard fucking me. game. That's how it is. Heard, I think you heard me wrong. I was talking about oven mitts. I said safe baking. Oh, safe banking. I always practice safe banking. Anyone who wants to check out my Instagram page, I am quite the banker. Uh, that is what Jason was referring to. I can bake anything you like. I might even try cannabis infused uh, uh, baked goods someday. We'll see. <laughs> Consumption. Consumption is the key to success. Let's keep smoking the news. Pass safe banking. No. Up next, sorry. <laughs> Up next, she's a NorCal-based pot-smoking PhD that remains optimistic in the midst of absolute cannabis industry chaos. She's a political economist and founder of Mahajan Consulting. Up next, Manika Mahajan. What you got for us today? Good morning. Thank you so much, Rico. Good morning, team. Good morning, audience. Today, I'm giving an update on a story I covered last week about Ohio's reform efforts. And my headline is, more Ohio cities set to vote on marijuana decriminalization as activists pursue statewide reform initiative. So last week, uh, we talked about a statewide ballot initiative, and that is now in limbo as GOP lawmakers, House Speaker Bob Cup, and Senate President Matt Huffman are questioning whether activists met the requisite deadline. Note that these two GOP that I spoke of last week, who introduced the legislation by the Coalition to Regulate Marijuana Like Alcohol. You may remember that the coalition submitted 207,000 signatures, which started a four-month clock for Ohio's bicameral legislature to act and pass the language. And if it fails to do so by May 28th, the coalition could collect another 133,000 or so signatures to put the proposal to voters in November. Senate President Huffman had already signaled that he wouldn't bring it to the floor, and it would have to be decided by voters instead. But now they're allegedly attempting to block it from the 2022 ballot, thereby pushing it out to 2023. Members of the Coalition to Regulate Marijuana Like Alcohol filed a lawsuit on Friday against House Speaker Bob Cup and Senator and Senate President Matt Huffman, claiming they're improperly attempting to delay the ballot question until next year. Meanwhile, Ohio activists aren't putting all their eggs in the statewide initiative basket. They're also pushing for decriminalization at the local level, led by Normal and Sensible Movement Coalition, SMC. Quote, we will continue to aggressively pursue the decriminalization of marijuana in our state. Don Keeney, executive director of Normal Appalachia, Appalachia, I think that's how you say that, of Ohio, told Marijuana Moment. Our work with the ballot initiative process uh, proves without a doubt that ordinary citizens can do extraordinary things. This form of direct democracy gives us personal rights and personal freedoms that you might not know you have, end quote. Two more counties, Laurelville and Shawnee, recently certified ballot measures to let voters decide on cannabis reform this year. Normal and SMC are also targeting at least another 17 jurisdictions. According to Yeager, Ohio voters had rejected a 2015 legalization initiative that advocates criticized as an oligopolistic model that would have granted exclusive control over cannabis production to the very funders who paid to put the measure on the ballot. So that's why that failed, according to Yeager. A recent poll found that a slim majority of Ohio voters would support marijuana legalization on the ballot. The moral of this story is that voters can challenge local and state bans with grassroots efforts and strong campaigns. We don't have to wait for the legislators in every case. So my hope is that stories like this inspire similar direct democracy efforts across the country. Stay tuned as this story continues to develop. I'm Menika Mahajan reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Nothing, nothing about the Ohio you're going to bring up, uh, Jason? Do they have crickets in Ohio? They have lots of crickets in Ohio. Shit tons. <laughs> and they, they have 2.5 tenths. <laughs> They also have John Boehner and Nick Lachey and Abercrombie oh, and Fitch. So listen, guys, Ohio is a, a state that is currently medical. About 250,000 people are uh, currently um, receiving that they have their card in the state. There's been a big push towards legalization. They have an upcoming um, Ohio Expo coming up in um, Columbus, Ohio, June 
I think June 3rd, 4th, and 5th. So anyone that's out there, um, if you want to look at this market from a business perspective, I think it watch and see what's happening from legalization. Decriminalization is a priority um, with a lot of advocacy groups, but also there's a lot of business opportunities. They just did a lottery and added 70 more dispensaries, and we are really pushing for them to um, make sure they spread the wealth. So I think people should keep their eyes on Ohio. Thank you, Roz. Ohio is also really important for, uh, I think, medical research to advance in this country. So much research is done out of the Cleveland Clinic in northern Ohio. And if cannabis was much more accessible and many of more of the patients coming through there were consumers of cannabis, the doctors there would be forced to confront issues about the intersection of uh, over-the-counter and pharmaceutical drugs with cannabis. And we might see more progress made at a faster rate. So I do hope that... Um, What's happening in Ohio leads to more accelerated legalization and access. Yes, and thank I, you, I thank agree. you, thank Rico. Did you want to make another point before we relight? Yeah, just real quick. I was going to say I agree with Brandon uh, there on the medical side. Uh, also, um, the first medical malpractice uh, insurance for the cannabis industry came out of Ohio uh, too. There's going to be a lot of uh, big business, um, uh, big pharma. Um, uh, handled business coming out of Ohio. So it's definitely a state to watch, um, but I think it's going to be overridden by a ton of corruption. That's just my prediction. Last comment, Troy in our audience made a statement in the chat about the fees being excessive and it's only for privilege. And that should also be, you know, looking at all different aspects of new law and new legalization that don't make the fees so crazy that you can't open up the market. So thanks, Troy, for that feedback. Or you get a voicemail. Yeah, and thank you, Manica, for keeping an eye on Ohio. We're going to relight this room. You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers and not those of any other speaker, the State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and the speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any exceptions in any country, area, or territory, or of any authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationship. The sponsorships of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expression of any opinion whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any speaker. Viewer discretion advised. Let's keep smoking the news. All right, well, coming up next to the stage, this OG veteran and dope dad's known and respected by peers as a steadfast defender of the culture. Always first to stand up for the rights of the legacy operators, the co-founder and CEO of Papa and Barkley is coming to the stage next. Take a seat and listen to y'all to the Gospel of Guy Record. Thank you, Jason. Good morning. Good morning, Susan. Good morning, Rico. Morning, team. Uh, this morning, my article is coming out of Green Entrepreneur, and the title is Hot and Pretzels. Would you travel to Germany for cannabis? So a recent survey suggested that two-thirds of Americans said that they would be willing, willing to visit cannabis dispensary in Germany, where lawmakers recently agreed on a plan to launch legal cannabis by 2024. Americans said they would consider investing in cannabis dispensaries, with 80% saying that cannabis companies are an attractive investment opportunity. Another 61% said that they would consider investing in European cannabis stocks, according to the survey from Frankfurt-based Bloomwell Group. So Malta and Luxembourg have already decriminalized cannabis ownership. There's already a thriving medical program in Germany. Germany has 82 million inhabitants, which is more than California and Canada, the two largest current markets on the globe. So this is definitely exciting stuff. And like what happened in Denver, the Germans believe that being the first European nation to have full-on adult use along with dispensaries, and I hope, it doesn't mention it, but I hope cannabis lounges, that they will be able to draw folks from across Europe for uh, tourism. So German laws, this German law is being pushed by a new coalition government that came into power in 2021 that includes Social Democratic Party of Germany, the SPD, and the Free Democratic Party, the FDP, and the Greens. The German officials had already decriminalized marijuana in the country for medical program. However, the coalition is taking the step of creating a system that allows people to purchase marijuana from licensed dispensaries, much in the way the, the laws work in 18 U.S. states. So as far as tourism goes, 44% of people surveyed said they would travel to Germany specifically for cannabis tourism, while 65% of Americans said they would travel to a city or country to experience licensed cannabis market. Also, 66% said they would visit a cannabis dispensary or social consumption lounge in Germany. More than half said they already know that Germany is about to become the single la largest cannabis market in the world. So I'm not sure who they uh, 
surveyed because that's some deep knowledge. I don't know that I would even have said those things. I'm just not that aware of what's going on in Europe. But look, kudos to Germany for taking the lead and pushing this forward because everybody that decrims and every place that allows the plant to thrive becomes a shining example of what needs to be done. I don't believe there'll be any downside to this. Hopefully they will lead the way. Hopefully we will be caught up and also having our federal decrim and all the things that we need by 2026. But kudos to the folks in Germany for pushing forward. And I, for one, would definitely get on a plane to go to Germany to visit a dispensary. I'd never wanted to go there before, but I do now. This is Guy Rocourt reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I, I wonder, seriously doubt. I'll go ahead, Britton. I was just going to say, like, if Amsterdam, they changed their rules, right? So this might be Germany, like, clapping back, like, where we can be the place where people come, which I think is okay. What were you going to say, Jason? I seriously doubt you're ever going to see um, Germany having dispensaries in the form of what, what even Amsterdam or the U.S. has. Angela Merkel is a tireless hater on cannabis, and so I don't see that shit changing while, while under her tenor at all. But she's out, no? She's retired. Yeah, she's out. That's why there's this new government. Oh, well, then, there, then, but, there, then there's hope. And there shall be but hope. I also think Amsterdam isn't like it used to be, right? Like, it's not open to tourists. Stop. Nick. Amsterdam is definitely open to tourists. As somebody that has traveled Europe extensively for cannabis tourism, I can say that Eastern Europe does need legal cannabis facilities. I've been to that serve both cannabis and alcohol in Prague, um, which has a very strong cannabis scene. Um, they're trying really hard to push uh, for, for just actual dispensaries in Prague as well. but. Um, I would be all for German dispensaries, but please let's let's get away from the the notion that Amsterdam has changed anything because they have not, and they're not going to. So thank you. I'm just confused because well, I mean there's there's definitely weed all over Eastern Europe. I've also in like bars and shit in Prague, Serbia, everywhere, Slovakia, but going to ban the tourist cafes in Amsterdam. They they are not. They're, there's been reports and they've been trying to do this since the 90s. Every single time there's a mayoral change or a change in parliament, they try to push the weed pass through. It never goes anywhere. So um, it, it's, it's all scare tactics. We're not going to lose Amsterdam. But Spain's the place to go anyway. Spain has taken over. I hope you're right. I heard it's Thailand next. Nick, I agree with yeah, you. Yeah, Thailand. Last time I was in Amsterdam, it was the same thing. I thought they, there was rumors of them shutting the cafes down, and it's just it's it's too much part of the culture. But I think most importantly, like most cannabis activations, it's just not worth the effort. The fact is, cannabis dispensaries, cannabis activations are not like bars. They don't cause brawls. They usually don't draw the ire of police. They don't need over-enforcement. So it just becomes this conceptual thing that somebody hates, but boots on the ground. You're like, why am I doing this? And that that was my experience with Amsterdam. It's like, yeah, people are talking about it, but nobody's irritated. Nobody's trying to change it. So I, I kind of agree with you, Nick. I, I don't think it's going anywhere. I think there's just constant saber rattling from conservative people to have some talk. Police reported ahead. I mean, the, the locals literally live inside of like prostitution rings. They're not concerned about cannabis. Let's keep smoking the news. Yeah. So our next correspondent's got a smoother delivery than DHL and a price point lower than the USPS. And that's because Clark Kent of cannabis is a man of the people. The communication strategist and publisher of the American Cannabis Report. Coming to the stage next, Christopher Smith. What you got for us today, my man? Good morning. Thank you, Rico. Good morning, Susan and Jason. My story today is from High Times and the Marijuana Policy Project. Cannabis is now America's fifth most profitable crop. I'm not sure why High Times is posting the story this week. It's based on reporting from the fall and also from last month. But anyway, they're just putting it up now. So here we go. Um, a whole bunch of numbers coming at you this morning. Uh, some pretty impressive sums being rung up by our cannabis farmers across the U.S. And no love from the uh, from the government, which is uh, a very big picture view of what Rico reported from Oklahoma. The U.S. Department of Agriculture tracks annual yields, prices, and estimated value for nearly every commercial crop in America, but the USDA does not track legal cannabis due to the plant's status as a Schedule One drug, which is just weird because legal adult use states cannabis is consistently one of the highest value crops in the field. For the purposes of the report, 
this is Leafly. Um, the, uh, they, they tracked uh, 11 states where any adult can walk into a licensed store and buy cannabis. Um, in those 11 adult use states, that, these are the states that are, have markets that are up and running and, and taxes are being generated. Um, cannabis supports 13,042 licensed farms that, that harvested 2,278 metric tons of uh, cannabis last year, and it's returning $6 billion to American farmers every year. That's whole Wholesale price for flour by dry, dry weight, in case you're counting. Um, so that figure of a little more than $6 billion ranks cannabis as the fifth most valuable crop in the United States, behind corn, soybean, hay, and wheat, but higher than cotton, rice, and peanuts, and a lot of others. The report said that in five of the states where adult-use cannabis sales are legal, Cannabis is actually the most valuable crop. And in Alaska, cannabis is more than twice as valuable as all other crops combined. The amount of cannabis uh, harvested uh, would fill, this is a fun fact, would fill 57 Olympic-sized swimming pools or over 11,000 dump trucks in a line for stretching 36 miles. I don't know who figures that out. Um, Adult-use states uh, only, not medical, generated more than $3.7 billion in tax revenue, but that's just the taxes. Remember, Remember that... MJ Biz Daily estimates the total economic impact of cannabis to be $100 billion per year. However, none of these states report uh, none of these states report these cannabis figures. None of the 11 states included in the Leafly Harvest report uh, officially list cannabis among their top agricultural commodities. In 2020, Congress gave $35 billion in emergency pandemic aid to American farmers on top of the $10 billion already given in typical farm subsidies. Cannabis farmers did not receive any of this assistance. Additionally, cannabis farmers lack typical business and crop insurance options due to the Controlled Substance Act effect on the banking industry. So just a handful of carriers offer limited insurance coverage. The industry only wrote $250 million in policies based on $6 billion in sales. Uh, and the premiums for cannabis companies run 20 to 30% higher than rates for comparable non-cannabis companies. These unfair and unnecessary measures are taken against a legal crop that's one of our top agricultural products in every adult use states. Cannabis doesn't raise, doesn't raise itself. Cannabis farmers grow it, and it's time the nation celebrated their success. Cannabis farmers are farmers, period. And I'm done speaking. We love our farmers. Um, I'm not sure if this is actually accurate. I don't know if they're really uh, equating for the 280E expenses that we incur um, (laughs) as as business operators and cultivators and whatnot when they're putting these projections together. It said that the... um that the figures were based on the sale, like I said, the wholesale price for flour by dry weight. So yes, wholesale yes. prices for flour by yes. dry weight, not not reductions and all of the other tax uh, taxable actions. Well, they're, they're talking about the wholesale weight on the on the per eighth price, which has a ton of taxes already baked into that price. So it definitely does not equate for the exorbitant taxes that are baked into the prices. In any case, they're getting no love. Thank you for bringing that story, Christopher. Cannabis farmers get all the love from the state of Cannabis News Hour team. Straight up. We do, we do. Moving on. And moving on. All right, Chris, you said it, baby. She's the Florida-based entrepreneur leading the charge for the ultimate cannabis lifestyle brand, Black Buddha Cannabis. Also the founder and CEO of Minorities for Medical Marijuana coming next to the stage and is Roz McCarthy. Thank you, Jason. Good good morning, good afternoon, everybody. Roz McCarthy here. My story is coming from Marijuana Moment, and this is entitled Missouri House Committee Approves Joint Resolution to Put Marijuana Legalization on the Ballot, and this is by Kyle um, Yeager. And so, again, we just want to stay on top of these different states that are moving towards legalization for adult use as well. So, again, a Missouri House committee on Tuesday approved of a GOP-led joint resolution seeking to place the issue of marijuana legalization before the voters on November on the November ballot. The Special Committee on Criminal Justice passed an amendment version of the legislation sponsored by the chair 
which is Representative Shamid Dogan, which is a Republican, in a 7-2 vote. The, de the development comes amid a push for separate measure to enact legalization legislatively that also advances through committee but ran up against a procedural hurdle on the House floor this week. Certain advocates and stakeholders have expressed concerns about the campaign's initiative voicing preference for a reform bill sponsored by Representative Ron Hicks, also a Republican. It's unclear what that measure might be taken up on the floor or not, as a sponsor was recently told by leadership that it wasn't ready to move. Dogan, for his part, pre-filed his joint resolution to place a constitutional amendment on legalization on the 2022 ballot last year. He introduced a similar proposal last year, but it did not advance. Under the lawmaker's plan, as amended by the panel on Tuesday, cannabis offenses would be removed from the state's criminal statute, allowing adults to possess, use, and sell marijuana for, for personal use without, pers without facing penalties, pending future regulations that could be enacted by the legislature. The committee substituted that the panel adopted changes to the original proposal by omitting provisions that would have eliminated the state's existing separate medical cannabis program and set policies related to the taxation in the adult use market. Um, so again, Dogan said, hey, I want to streamline the original resolution and I want to propose simple policy change that voters would decide on while leaving further regulations on the legal market for the legislature to decide at a later point. So all this being said, it was kind of interesting that we see Republicans really driving legalization conversation um, at the state level in Missouri. And again, you know, the issue about caps. And so it's been said that Dogan's bill, um, the measure no longer includes caps and licensing policy and all that stuff he said. The legislature could say, you know, we're going to have people operate a marijuana business within 20 feet of a school zone or not. Or the legislature or the legislature can say you can have 10 licenses or you can have 20. That's left up to future legislation. Um, the effective date for this resolution would be January 31st, 2024. And it goes on to just talk about, you know, advocates and their preference of seeing um, joint bills filed. Just something that really popped up that I was I thought was pretty interesting. Um, nearly one out of every 10 jobs that were created in Missouri last year came from the state's medical marijuana industry, according to an analysis of state labor data. And so um, there's a lot of drama that's playing out in Missouri. I just think it's really, really interesting that the GOP is really leading several of these bills. And we just want to make sure the purity of the bills and that it's not convoluted and also making sure that, you know, I think in Missouri, it's a case of the haves and the have nots, that the have nots also get an opportunity to participate in this um, ever-growing industry in Missouri. I'm Roz McCarthy signing off for the State of the Cannabis News Hour. Would love to hear your thoughts. Anyone from Missouri, I don't know if we have Brennan England in the audience, but would love to hear your thoughts. Thanks, guys. I, nobody from Missouri. Ahead. Nobody from Missouri out here. I've, well, on, I've I, got. I, a, I, I thought it was Missouri. No, it's actually pronounced <laughs> misery. Misery. I've got a fun fact. I've got a fun fact about Missouri. If, if some of you don't know, I I was uh, uh, Mormon in my past life, and Missouri, according to the Mormons, was where the Garden of Eden was, and that's where Jesus is going to come back when he comes back, and that's why on the top of a Mormon temple you'll see a golden statue of the angel Moroni facing Missouri. They also sell uh, heroin on the river. Um, you know, during you know river church services and shit. Uh, that's is that why they? Is that why they say? I think I saw that in a documentary. Uh, that's I the Ozark. I think a, net, a Netflix <laughs> Netflix documentary called Ozark, right? Uh, and I would like to say that's one of my favorite shows. But listen, Missouri. I will tell you what was interesting in 2018 and um, 17, but going into 18 when they were going through their process of getting um, of of doling out licenses. The way that they did it, they they ended up separating um, the state by its congressional districts. And so literally every con congressional district was allowed to have up to 25 dispensaries on the medical side. And then you were up to allowed to have up to like 32 um, manufacturing processing centers. And like, like it, was, it was just a number, but I like their approach because instead of having everyone try to go to the, the city um, area or trying to go into the urban area, you kept it spread out. So that if you lived in the west part of Missouri, if you lived on, you know, in the central part of Missouri, you were able to compete in that area and not have people trying to cross pollinate. So it'll be interesting to see what they do um, as they are now looking at legalization, because the cannabis market on the medical side in Missouri is hot right now. How big is Ross, the market? 
Roz, the market is so huge out there. I know of someone that's operating out there, and they wholesale half-gram distillate carts for $35. It's, it's huge. Like, I don't know what they're doing it's out there. It's huge. you got to do it it's right, huge. Roz. It's like, huge. Yeah. Y-U-G-E. Yeah, huge. Yeah. So, again, you guys, you got to read the tea leaves. I know you guys don't come on this every day for all the different news and you're looking at it from your own different perspectives. But if it's the economics and if you're looking at it from a business perspective and trying to figure out opportunity for yourself, look at your medical markets, the ones that are thriving right now. If they're thriving and you got to go through all this process to get a card and they're thriving, just imagine when they become legal. So now's the time to figure out partners and create connections and figure out what your business is and what you want to do and start kind of ingrate, you know, ingraining yourself in that state and figuring it out. So there's, we have no excuse now not to figure things out because it's very plain. You can see the tea leaves. You can read them. It's, it's clear. And name the your brand, on the wall. name your brand Garden of Eden, but let's keep smoking the news. Up next is an attorney at law focusing on the intersectionality of cannabis entertainment and psychedelics. And that, she also documents her journey along the way on a super lit Instagram feed. <laughs> Sorry, y'all. Up next is Shalina Panu. What you got for us today, Shalina? Thanks so much, Rico. Good morning, everyone. My name is Shalina, and my headline for today is Activists Pushing DEA to Allow Terminally Ill Patients Access to Psilocybin Under the Right to Try Act. According to FDA.gov, in May 2018, President Trump signed the Right to Try Act, which allows terminally ill patients to have access to an eligible investigational drug where the patients have exhausted other approved treatment options and is unable to participate in a clinical trial involving the eligible investigational drug. The right to try is actually the law of the land, creating a uniform system allowing access for terminally ill patients seeking investigational treatments that have exhausted all other available options. According, according to the Green Light Law Group, nearly two years ago, Advanced Integrated Medical Sciences which is also known as AIMS, and Dr. Sunil Agarwal, the co-director of AIMS, sent a letter to the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA, requesting access to psilocybin for two of their patients who were both suffering from terminal illnesses. The letter further requested advice and guidance on how the doctor could give psilocybin to the patients with incurring liability without incurring liability under the Controlled Substance Act. Additionally, Catherine Tucker, who is the counsel to AIM, sent an email to the DEA suggesting that the DEA could allow Dr. Agarwal an exemption from prosecution under the CSA via the Right to Try Act. Side note, the DEA has previously issued exemptions for religious purposes. A week later, the DEA responded to Dr. Agarwal's letter stating that the RTT does not waive the requirements of any provision of the CSA or its implementing regulations, and absent an explicit statutory exemption to the CSA, the DEA has no authority to weigh any of the CSA's requirements pursuant to the RTT. Further, the DEA stated that the doctor would be able to apply for researcher registration. However, because a doctor did not have a registration for researching psilocybin, he was not exempt from prosecution because that specific provision applied to individuals already registered with the DEA to engage in research in controlled substances. If he obtained researcher registration from the DEA, then he would be able to petition for an exemption from prosecution under the CSA. As such, Ames filed a suit against the DEA under the RTT Act in the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit under a provision which allows judicial review of final decisions of the Attorney General. Arguments were presented before a three-judge Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals panel. However, because the Ninth Circuit determined that the DEA's later was not concluded to be a final decision, the court lacked jurisdiction to hear the matter, which essentially required the court to dismiss the action. Don't get discouraged, though, because the court's dismissal was off of a technicality and not on the actual merits of the case. According to microdose.buzz, although there has been a delay in allowing psilocybin access to treat terminally ill patients, people like David Bronner, who is a CEO of the soap company Dr. Bronner's, are leading peaceful protests against the DEA by going to their headquarters and blocking off their entrance. As stated on righttotrysilocybin.com, on May 9th at 12 p.m., this group will engage in protests and civil disobedience to demand the DEA to stop its obstruction of duly enacted state and federal laws and open access to this healing therapy for end-of-life suffering. If you would like to join this protest, they are having a Zoom call on May 8th at 3 p.m., and there will be transportation and lodging stipends available for those in need of financial help getting to dc to help support this cause what are your thoughts on the da blocking terminally ill patients access to psilocybin my name is shalina and i'm reporting for the state of cannabis news hour
I think if you, I think if you're terminally ill, you should have access to whatever the fuck you want to use you know, um, to, to get better, to feel better, and to feel comfortable as possible. <coughs> I think it's absolute bullshit. They shouldn't be blocking any access to anything. Hundred percent. I fully agree with you on that, Rico. Sorry, Jason. Yeah, a lot of it's sad that people have to wait till they're terminally ill to get access. But definitely, if you're terminally ill, it becomes a quality of life issue. And who determines your quality of life if not yourself? You know, but a, a lot of these folks probably could have used these products before. This is not dissimilar to the cannabis shame when folks were getting great relief from cannabis and being denied it as well. So hopefully these uh, actions can make some forward progress. We need to keep moving so we can get Brandon in. All right. Well, here we go. This beard was born and bred in Michigan. Maybe that's why this beard commands such a presence, because baby, it's cold outside. So cold that the beard was compelled to move to sunny Long Beach, California, where the beard received a law degree, known in the bar exam as the Brandon Beard Award for high scores. This intellectual IP attorney and CEO of Fruit Slabs is none other than Brandon Dorsky. Let's go, Brandon. What do you have for us today? Thanks for having me, and what a beautiful intro. My article comes from MJ Brand Insights. It's Welcome to the Emerald Village, West Hollywood's Take on Cannabis Tourism. WeHo has been a center for nightlife and entertainment for a decade, for decades. And with 16 cannabis consumption lounges scheduled to be open within the next two years, weed tourism is looking like it's going to thrive there, too. Established in 2021, Emerald Village is the city of West Hollywood's officially sanctioned Chamber of Commerce, for cannabis businesses. Executive Director Scott Schmidt said, quote, for more than 100 years, West Hollywood has been where Los Angeles comes to play. We have the Sunset Strip with the live music venues. We've got the Rainbow District. And cannabis in the Emerald Village is one more thing that makes West Hollywood a great, amazing, fun destination. Schmidt noted it's still illegal for people to smoke cannabis in their hotel rooms and sees the anticipated consumption lounges as the ideal solution. As of press time, only the artistry is open and thriving as a consumption lounge. Artistry initially opened as a dispensary and interactive art gallery in 2019 and recently expanded to include an outdoor patio and consumption lounge and hosted a soft opening just before 420. Co-founder of the Artistry, Lauren Fontaine, said, quote, our whole mission is to promote local artists and at the core of our business is promoting the connection between art and cannabis and highlighting that in our stores. In addition to the Artistry, the original Cannabis Cafe was a once operational consumption lounge and the first of its kind. But it closed before the pandemic due to management issues and has not yet reopened. Other lounges are not yet open, but the rumors of what they will be are certainly percolating through Los Angeles's cannabis conversations. L.A. Patients and Caregivers Group, more commonly known as LAPCG, a dispensary you can frequently find fruit slabs at, will have an edibles lounge that's already been approved but is not yet open. Other approved lounges that are set to open on Santa Monica Boulevard include Aeon Botanica, Pleasure Med, a to-be-named facility operated by Where Eagles Fly, and Antidote, which will start construction later this year a few feet from the Troubadour. West Hollywood is allowing for two license types for consumption businesses, one allowing for smoking and, smoking and vaping in the entirety of the space, another where at least half of the space is set aside for non-combustible consumption. One that will allow smoking will be The Wood, which hosts its soft opening on May 10th and grand opening on May 13th. We have mentioned the woods before on the program. It is a lounge partially owned by Woody Harrelson that will feature heirloom cannabis strains. Another celebrity-driven consumption lounge is set for Sunset Boulevard with Sol Yamini, cast member of the Shahs of Sunset, behind a venture that has four cannabis licenses, including a Green Wolf retail dispensary, to be located at the strip mall that houses Pink Dot near La Cienega and Sunset. It's exciting to see so much planned consumption businesses and the evolution of America's first Amsterdam-esque cannabis tourism experience. But like many other operations, the likelihood of delays, setbacks, and legal limitations on these types of businesses may make the rollout a bit more frustrating than expected for the businesses and the consumers they intend to serve. This is Brandon Dorsky reporting for the State of Cannabis News. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much, Brandon. We've reached the top of the hour. That was a great show. If you missed any of it, make sure to catch the replay or find us a few hours after the show anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave us a review. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that comb through all the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know. A big thank you to Rico and Jason for co-producing the show and our pinup girl, Jaja Simone Brown. Thank you, audience, for being our eyes and ears when there's news in your city, county, state, or country. Your addition to our show makes the State of Cannabis News Hour news you can trust. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour. 
where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday, 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Bye. Um, uh, um, 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 Uh, 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 um, 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 um,